0: Hello, this is the Game Podcast from the Times, and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Matt Dickinson. Matt, how are you? How are you enjoying football being back?
1: Uh, well, it's better than football not being back, that's for sure. I mean, I've been to uh, I've been to a couple of games in the flesh, um, a couple of uh, Aston Villa. I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 not the same experience, obviously, but um, yeah, uh, good to be back. I think you know we we're, we're seeing some sort of um, inevitable sort of quirks of it in terms of form we're seeing. Um, uh, but, you know, I think the TV experience, the the sort of crowd noise and so on, we're making the best of a bad job. I think that's, you know, that's that's where I put it.
0: No, I would agree with that, with the TV experience. Just in terms of the protocols, is it standard throughout? Everywhere you've gone, it's the same sort of system for when you're going to a game?
1: Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, the temperature check on the way in, I mean, you know, it's it is sort of surreal because, you know, we associate the, you know go and turning up at a a match with you know just the the throng and and the sort of unique sort of buzz that can give to different games you know you sort of you know especially especially those big games where you feel that sort of that crackle um through the crowd um so yeah it's it's you know it's uh i mean the the parking is obviously a lot easier but um <laughs> um that's that's the only sort of <laughs> small very small upside of all this you know crowds crowds give their own narrative to a a game and I'm sure we'll get onto it but particularly something like I mean I went to Aston Villa versus Chelsea and 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 it was like this thing called home advantage had vanished you know it was Mm -hmm. it was you know there was sort of a game where you thought well Aston Villa might throw the kitchen sink at them in the last 10 minutes roared on by a home crowd and of course without that it felt like they were sort of completely neutered you know and and it was it was all just about quality rather than any kind of sort of you know frenzy that that can be whipped up between a home team and its crowd
0: yeah i think even dean smith after aston villa's latest defeat unfortunately for them has mentioned the lack of crowd being a, a big issue for them as they lost of course at the weekend to, to wolves gregor how are you
2: i'm fine thank you yes um I've, I've probably gone to the most surreal game of the restart tonight, the League Two playoff final at, at Wembley. So a Wembley final with no fans. That's going to be yes. really weird.
0: I can't imagine what that's going to be like as an experience for you, but also as an experience for those players uh, who... Uh, You've you, you played at Wembley, haven't you, Gregor? Yeah. So you know what it's like to be in front of a, a busy Wembley crowd. And for some of those players who will never, ever have never, ever played at Wembley, this is going to be very surreal for them.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and you know it's still got the same weight of importance, but it, it just—it's going to be hard for it to feel like that. You yeah. know, it's, still, it's obviously huge for them. If it defines what league you're going to be in next season, and I just think that you know I, I spoke to Keith Carl, the Northampton manager, and and uh, Matt Taylor, the Exeter manager, and kind of pre 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 match press conferences this week, and and Matt Taylor was saying you know he had to speak to his captain uh, Jake Taylor just to say look, you know, I understand this is something that normally your family would be in the stands, you're the captain, you'd lead out the team at Wembley and it'd be a huge experience for you, but it's going to be nothing like that. And, and uh, you know, I think he's tried to kind of speak to the, his players about the psychology of it because it is going to, well, as I say, it's still so important, but it won't feel quite as sort of a momentous an occasion for them. But mm. yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what it's like.
0: I suppose, Matt, this is what's going to be the most bizarre aspect to, to football restarting again those kind of finals those even the semi-finals and final of the FA Cup being played at an empty Wembley.
1: Yeah there's no two ways about it it's it's, it's a shame a great shame in so many ways for fans I mean I was thinking the other day watching um, one of the young players coming on at, uh, at at Liverpool and just thinking you know that's that's somewhere where a, a family should be you know you imagine the parents would be in the stand and uh, you know how many relatives would be there to see this big occasion special occasion and they're not there so it's not just you know the fact that they're the sort of regular paying punters it's it's all that sort of emotion that might normally be wrapped up in in an appearance and obviously a Wembley appearance comes with you know bells on top in terms of what that should feel like to anyone involved
0: are you printing out something, Matt?
1: Sorry, yeah, there's that's <laughs> Jesus it's like, it's like his son's son's doing homework and stuff. I was I was also I was also gonna say, by the way, I'm very disappointed that you, you went instantly to Gregor to say you've played at Wembley. I'd I'd like, of I'd course, like Matt. Of
0: course I'd like you to have. add
1: I'd like to add that I, I I not only played but scored at the old I Wembley know. and and I played at the new Wembley in on its first ever outing. So you know,
2: Were they behind closed doors or that.
1: <laughs> uh actually but ama- amazingly for the the the, the second one day's opening of the new Wembley there was about 25,000 people there and I have to say uh-huh. I'd never I never, ever want to play and embarrass myself in front of 25,000 people. (laughs) Uh, 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 It lives in my memory, but I suspect no one else's.
0: Please accept my apologies. Next time when I'm talking about playing at Wembley, I'll come to you straight away, Matt. Um, Coming out, we are talking Guards of Honour as Liverpool are crowned champions and giving our top four predictions as the race for the Champions League places. Hots up. All to come after this. Now, it was a busy weekend with Premier League action as well as all four FA Cup quarterfinals. In the Cup, Manchester United needed extra time to beat Norwich on Saturday before a triple header on Sunday saw Arsenal snatch a late win at Sheffield United, Chelsea edge past Leicester and Manchester City ease past Newcastle at St. James's Park. We'll come to Leicester in a moment, but let's start with that Newcastle game then. City, as I say, ran out 2-0 winners, meaning Newcastle's 65-year wait for a major trophy continues. Was this another nail in Steve Bruce's coffin at Newcastle? Well, the £300 million Saudi takeover at St. James's is still awaiting approval from the Premier League, despite being submitted almost three months ago. But speculation continues over the future of Steve Bruce and whether or not he will remain in his role at Newcastle. Could staying in the FA Cup have kept him in the job for a little longer? Matt?
1: Well, I mean, by, by Newcastle United's Cup standards, getting to the, you know, getting to the quarterfinals is is triumphant. Um, you know, this is a club that sort of famously under Mike Ashley at times has sort of, you know, we, we've seen some clubs sort of uh, pretend to be involved and Newcastle haven't even managed that at times. It's been, you know, who cares uh, about the Cups? So, you know, I think judging him on a Cup run where actually but actually by sort of Newcastle's standard he's he's done above par would be would be harsh. And I think, you know, I, I, I think there's so much more for Newcastle fans to worry about than whether Steve Bruce, you know, is is the right man, you know. I think he's done a, a a decent job and in as usual at Newcastle, pretty woeful context. I mean, this is a club that's that's had a lot of dysfunction, you know. I know money's you know been spent on someone like Joe Linton, but you know, how much Say obviously the managers ha- having that at Newcastle, we've also got the issue of your, as a manager working against the backdrop of of the ownership, you know, disruption, which you know, and it's it's not easy to 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 manage a team, keep a focus when you know you don't, you know, you're constantly reading speculation about new ownership, what that's going to mean for the club, what that's going to mean for funding, what it's going to mean for your for your own position, and I, I have sympathy for Steve Bruce in in a lot of those respects, that's for sure.
0: Gregor, whenever there is a takeover at a club, you always inevitably start talking about a new manager taking over as well, because those new investors, those new owners, will want their own man in the job. Can we see any way that he will be able to keep his job, Bruce, if that expected takeover goes through?
2: It's very hard to, and I feel, you know, I feel some sympathy for him in that regard because um, he's, Newcastle are, are a win off tenth they they're they've done better than than last season under Rafa Benitez. and that's with all the kind of you know all the the he certainly didn't receive any fanfare when when he walked through the door he's still not despite having taken Newcastle to their best uh the best cup run in many years and and as i say improved on last season so uh that you have to have sympathy for him, but I just think that if this take takeover goes through and it's still a big if you know he's he's even come out yesterday and said he, he wants some clarity himself and I think everyone does at this stage if it goes through though then it's just such a a colossal change in outlook for that football club and it would almost be a kind of uh, a way of, of of getting the fans on side by by showing them the exit door and bringing in a big name so it'd be you know it's an easy an easy tick in a box for for a new and new owner of the football club. So, and, but as I say, I would feel great sympathy for Steve Bruce for that because he's he's done a, a better job than most people would have expected.
0: Well, Graeme Soonis has been writing about Bruce for the Sunday Times. And Gregor, we might need you to help us with some Scottish transla- translation for this one. <laughs> this is what Soonis said. If someone takes over Steve's jacket is on a shugly peg, as we say in Scotland, because whoever is brokering the deal will sex it up to prospective buyers as a package, including a new coach. They may not be better coaches than Steve, but will be seen as sexier names to whoever is buying. Okay, Gregor, what on earth is a shugly peg? Have I got that right? Is it a shugly peg?
2: (laughs) Yeah, close enough (laughs) now. Shugly is just like a Scottish word for wobbly or unstable. So you could get a shugly table or, you know... A oh. peg just means it's your jacket might fall off it and it's not going to be there for long.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. And so when you hear what Graham Sooness has had to say, that all makes perfect sense.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's just kind of that's that's exactly what I was just outlining there. I think, yeah. I think that as I say, it would be a it would be an easy sort of win for early win for for a new owner. Um, and I, I would feel great, simply for Steve Bruce for that, because uh, he's he's done a done a very good job, and it's a kind of dream job for him too. It's the the fact was he's he, there was no other job in the Premier League he was going to get really, um, and he shouldn't have got that. And if we're being honest with ourselves, he'd he's uh, he's his record in the Premier League of late has not been great. And Mike Ashley gave him the job despite the fans sort of. Outcry about it. Also, um, you know, I don't think he would. I think that would be the end of his Premier League career in all likelihood.
0: Matt, do you think being a fifty-nine-year-old Englishman counts against Steve Bruce at Newcastle?
1: Uh, I think the sense of being sort of, you know, having gone around the block um, a, a number of a number of clubs, like Gregor says, and you know, not having sort of, you know, sort of baubles to to to, to show for it, or you know, that that kind of you know proven top-end um, uh, ability is is going to be held again when a new owners come in and there's the sense of, oh, there's going to be loads of money around and then, you know, fans will read, oh, you know, Pochettino has been linked and suddenly expectations, certainly among fans, will, will you know, transform in, in those respects. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, I, I, I'd be surprised if Pochettino can't get rather better offers, you know, even if Newcastle were to say, here's you know, here's money to, to throw at the problem. A, there'll be a limit to that money in in, in the world of, of FFP and in a world where obviously, you know, um, coronavirus has changed a lot of budget forecasts. Uh, and even with that Saudi backing, um, you know, it's going to take Newcastle a while to to get themselves sorted to be, you know, you, I was reading this morning about Newcastle's record and it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, it it is actually quite astonishing to see how, how you know certainly in terms of trophies, obviously it's I mean it's almost laughable how how long it's been. Um, they've had sort of you know bursts of of success. They had those Champions League years under under Bobby Robson, but it's yeah. I mean this has been a place where when you think we know the potential, it's got the history and the heritage as well. Mm. It's it's underperformed so spectacularly, and and yeah, these are not problems that are just sort of you know they're, they're not they're not Steve Bruce's sort of you know, easy to fix. Uh, it's not even just Mike Ashley. It's it's a club that's needed some, some sort of, you know, major, major um, setting right in, in every respect for a very long time.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take a look at Steve Bruce's CV then. As a player with Manchester United, he won three Premier League titles, three FA Cups, plus a cup winner's Cup although never actually played for England which is so surprising and then as a manager four promotions to the Premier League with Birmingham and Hull plus an FA Cup final appearance with Hull in 2014 though unfortunately for, for Steve Bruce both those clubs were eventually relegated under his watch but overall when you look at that CV do you think he deserves more respect than he's given Gregor?
2: i I think it's kind of it's almost a bit of a generational thing now. I think there's people he, he he should be respected. I respect them. I think there's a kind of an expectation for a certain brand of football now in the Premier League, and that's what's that's what's really changed. It's not just about survival. It's not just about uh, you know staying in the Premier League or making the top ten or things like that. Or you know, it's not just about that. You've got to do it with a certain style now. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't say that he's, 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 he's been unfairly treated. He's had, he's had Mm. several, several jobs. I think when he joined Newcastle, he'd had the seventh highest number of, managed the seventh highest number of games in the Premier League. Um, And still even now, you know, if we're talking, if we're thinking about this as a kind of, he's unfairly maligned because he's British and he's 59. He's, I think 11 of 20 managers are from the British Isles currently in the Premier League. Um, but his record in the thing is, you know, he's won those promotions. He's, he's hugely respected in the championship and he's respected for keeping teams up in the Premier League a lot of the time. But he's, he's win, I think his win percentage when he joined Newcastle was the second lowest of any manager who'd managed 200 games or more. 28%. I mean, that'll have risen a little bit since, but it's not great. And part of that's to do with the clubs he's, he's managed. Um, he's only had two top 10 finishes, I think. But it's part of that it's to do with the way the the style of football and the kind of the product on the pitch and I think that that is the 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 demands of what that is have changed now and uh and that's why he he's unlikely to to last long if if, if a new owner comes along
0: it's interesting how you talk about the the style football style and how it's changed and the, the generational aspect to, to a lot of all of this. There has been uh, another Premier League British stalwart, Sam Allardyce, who who has said in the past that if his surname was Allardycio, he'd have managed Manchester United. So do you think, Matt, that perhaps Steve Bruce is suffering the same fate? Because when you think back to his appointment, or he's, it's even before his appointment, when it was rumoured that he might take over, there were a lot of Newcastle fans that were simply against his appointment from the start.
1: Um, I, Yeah, I'm not quite sure Sam's... Um... Spot on with that, <laughs> you know. I, I I know the point he was trying to make at, at the time, but I think, um, yeah, Man United maybe not. Um, I, you know, I think there's that sort of familiarity can, yeah. Um, you know, the Newcastle fans are sort of feeling like, as I say, we use that phrase, has sort of been around the block. And what's, as Gregor says, the, the the record is, you know, at, certainly in the Premier League has been at the lower end of things. Yes, yeah, some success in the Championship, and there's just to To fans sort of looking looking up towards the the sky and the stars that's that seems un- underwhelming um particularly at a time when you 're talking about uh you know multi million pound takeovers you 're talking about sort of new new beginnings um but I think you know if the if the new owners are going to come come in um and you know say potcher someone like Pochettino is going to be beyond their reach, I think they need to sort of think shrewdly and not just go for a change for the sake of it because it, you know, as Graeme Souness says, it looks sexy or um I, I think it needs to be, you know, carefully thought through because you know, upgrading from Steve Bruce isn't just some automatic thing.
2: I think just also just to quickly say that Allardyce is one of the people who was above Bruce on that list. The people who were above him were Mark Hughes, Sam Allardyce and David Moyes and then you get into people like Alex Ferguson and, and uh, Arsene Wenger. So, like... He, he, he cannot say that he's not had opportunities, uh, mm. but the game is sort of travelling in one direction and there's a certain a view by in, in a lot of quarters that, that the kind of football they play is, is uh, of a bygone age. I think that's the reality of it.
0: Well, Steve Bruce's record of four Premier League promotions is the joint most in history, alongside a certain Neil Warnock, who, Gregor, of course, you went and uh, watched in his first game in charge for Middlesbrough, they were at Stoke this weekend. How was the trip and how did Middlesbrough look? Uh,
2: the trip was great. Empty roads. Uh, <laughs> as Matt said, you could park up outside. <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> There's a few silver linings. Uh, but the game itself, it was just exactly what you would expect of, of Neil Warnock. Uh, they had 31% of the ball. They completed 89 passes in the whole game. Stoke completed some like 330. Um and but they deserve to win. They absolutely deserve to really? win. They could have been two or three 0 up at half time. Uh, they, uh, Warnock threw on a, a substitute, uh, Marcus Deverney for for Patrick Roberts, and within a minute he'd scored the second. That was just after the hour mark. And then they defended really well. And uh, you know, he, <laughs> Warnock is another one. He's like he, he he does what he says on the tin. They, he put he had three days training with a with uh, this Middlesbrough team who were above the relegation zone. On goal difference only. They had we'd won one game since New Year's Day. They looked terribly disjointed, under motivated for, for a long, long time under under Jonathan Woodgate. And he just came in, he put square pegs in round holes, he put an arm around one or two people's shoulders, told them he liked them, he cracked his, you know he cracks a few jokes. He's he's a wily old guy. <laughs> he cracked he cracked a few jokes in the press about nearly having signed one or two of the players in the past and that he got off lightly having not signed them. You know, it was almost like a little Underhanded dig, but at the same time saying, I like you know I, there's some of these players I've I've tried to say in the past and I like and you know he just he's good at fostering team spirit and 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 it's still that's still a valuable commodity and so they, you know they vital two 0 one they've got Hull on Thursday um, and I would not be surprised to see him keep them up and I would not be surprised to see him extend his stay and go for a ninth a record ninth promotion next season.
0: Oh, he does have a terrific record when it comes to promotions, doesn't he? Um, You you mentioned there about the arm around the shoulder. You kind of wonder if one of his strengths is man management. Perhaps that's the same with Steve Bruce as well. Perhaps that's underselling them, though. We do know the impact of Chris Wilder and what he's making at Sheffield United in the Premier League. And Gregor, you've you've always spoke glowingly of Chris Wilder. Um, If Steve, Steve Bruce loses his job at Newcastle, Matt, do you think we'd ever see him back in the Premier League?
1: Uh, oh, I've, I think that's yeah, un, unlikely to be. To be frank, I mean, I think. Um, I don't know how many times I've lost count of Neil Warnock saying this is my last job in football, um, <laughs> and you know, bouncing back. Sure, sure enough, um, you know, I can yeah, can see if probably a few more, a few more after this. But no, I, th- I think for both of them, they're I mean, Neil Warnock's you know sort of proven his ability obviously I'd watched his teams at QPR a bit and it it did feel it's a funny it's a funny phenomenon because you sort of you know you see the how well he can galvanize a team at a certain level set them up and then they got up into the Premier League and obviously you know they're up against much greater quality and and promoted teams never going to find it easy but there was just a sort of rigidity to the setup um it's a reluctance seemed to be not just an inability to change, but a real sort of reluctance to, 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 to change. And it felt like the sort of team was seen through too too easily, became became too predictable. So, I mean, yeah, it's maybe, uh, certainly the evidence suggests there are certain managers who just sort of, you know, find, find what they're good at, find their level.
0: Well, elsewhere in the FA Cup, Ross Barkley came off the bench to sink Leicester and send Chelsea through to play Manchester United in the semifinals. Leicester were without injured James Madison and held their own in the first half before fading in the second as Frank Lampard rang the changes, including introducing the match winner Barkley as one of three half-time substitutes. It's been a disappointing restart for Leicester, who demolished Villa 4-0 in the final game before lockdown, but have since struggled to draws at Watford and at home to Brighton before this FA Cup defeat. Gregor, can you put your finger on why it feels as though Leicester have stuttered in this restart?
2: I think they they were stuttering before the restart. I think they've won mm. twice in the league since New Year's Day. It's a long you know they they won eight in a row before that and uh just before christmas um i I think they're just they're just not creating nearly the same number of chances, not the same quality of chances um I think you know I think we do have to also remember that how how remarkable a start they had and how how you know it wasn't that long ago we were comparing this team to. The title-winning team of 2016 and debating which one was better, so they they might have been overperforming slightly, um, but I think th- I think part of it is also to do with with the transformation under Rodgers. You know, they, they've they now regularly have kind of 60 of the ball, which is which was a huge spike from what was was under uh, Claude Puel, and but despite that, they still seem to be reliant on Spring and Jamie Vardy. <laughs> loose over the top of of the opposition's defence, but when they have sixty percent of the ball, uh, teams teams are going to sit deep and and kind of be be obdurate in the defending. So that space hasn't been there, and then the, then they're reliant upon James Madison or or Yuri Tielemans to to craft something. And I think they've struggled. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to put your finger on. I think also losing Ricardo Pereira, the right back. With a knee injury, was a huge loss. I think probably behind Trent Alexander-Arnold, he's the best right back in the league. He drives Leicester forward, gets the goal. Um, so it's yes, yeah, it's, it's it's no one really would have would have seen this. I think they've got Spurs and Manchester United in their last two games, uh, mm. I and mean, the Manchester United game in particular could be could be very interesting. So they are labouring. They, they look like they're labouring a little bit, not playing with the same zip. But it's, it's quite hard to put your, to your finger on why that is.
0: Yeah, it's a really strange one but as you mentioned it was a remarkable start that they made to the season. Everyone was talking up Leicester's chances this season but it seems to have gone off the boil. What do you think's gone wrong, Matt?
1: Um, well I think you know you could look as as simple as as Jamie Vardy's record. Um you know, even though Brendan Rodgers has tried to sort of spread their creative load, bring more variety to their game than than just clipping clipping Vardy through he scored twice both against Aston Villa since before christmas um and you know when a team's so reliant on him for his goals if you go back slightly early in the season through october november december um he was he was cracking them in um went on a run where he was scoring every every game he played for about 10 games so yeah two goals since before christmas is uh is is, you know, definitely a drought um by Jamie Vardy's standards and that's obviously not just to do with him, that's to do with service. But I think Gregor's right, this this uh faltering started uh, early in the new year before we went into lockdown, um, isn't just a feature of uh, of the return.
0: Well, Leicester's rivals for a top four spot, Wolves, took advantage of not being in the FA Cup by grabbing a vital three points at Aston Villa on Saturday in the Premier League and it pushes Wolves to fifth, just two points behind Chelsea and three off third place Leicester, having played a game more. Gregor, we have to talk about this Wolves side, just how good are they?
2: I think they're they're remarkable. It's it's just a never-ending train for them. I think that was their 51st game. Uh, which began last July with uh, Europa League qualification. Um, and obviously this season will end 12 months later. Um, and they'll have a very small break, but they seem to be the fittest group of players <laughs> that are walking the face of the earth. And they've used 20 players in the Premier League, which is the fewest of any club. Um, seven clean sheets from the last eight games. And if, and again, if you know we're talking about Leicester's kind of dip, it was the opposite for Wolves. They began... Um, they didn't win any of their first six league uh, Premier League games. There was even a bit of pressure and a bit of talk about whether the, the Europa League, as as often happens, would kind of scupper their, their Premier League form this season. But they've absolutely banished that. Um, and I think they've been a bit more kind of flexible in their tactical sort of setup this year. I think, you know, they always have the back three. Connor Cody plays like a quarterback and picks out those four passes. Um, but they... They often start with a three. It used to be the three four three, and I, you know, I've watched that a lot when they were in the championship, and they were very rigid with that. But they're often a three five two now, and then they switch in the second half to a three four three. Throw on Traore, who's the best substitute you could ever imagine, uh, with, with his speed, and Neto another player who's been remarkable of late. Um, and there was a stat I read this morning where, if the table was based on first halves alone, they'd be bottom of the league, <laughs> and on, on second halves, they'd be third in the league. So again that that demonstrates their fitness levels, but it also demonstrates the, the power the kind of uh the, the, the power of, of the substitutes and throwing on some like Traori has just changes changed so many games. But it's you know, you can pick out you can pick out so many so many good players for them and I thought uh Leander Dendonka was was remarkable for them uh on Sunday. He's played in the back three, he's also he's a box to box mid midfielder there. Uh and you know you got the goal, and they're just so well run i know matt's written written one or two things about the way that they they go about uh making the signs and the link with george mendes and it's not entirely palatable the wolves fans uh don't seem to care one bit at the moment um but I think you know if you put all that to one side and you look at the the sort of intelligence of the way this the wolves of have, of have, have, have kind of built this team and and gone about this rise it's pretty remarkable really
0: oh it certainly is and staggering when you as you have pointed out their first game of this season as such was back in July Uh, you know albeit we've had this this break but how have they kept up this fitness to have only used 20 players Matt what can you put it all down to?
1: Well, they've got a very shrewd manager. There's no two ways about that. Um, I mean, I rightly, I was writing about Chelsea last week and mentioned about the gap to Man United and quite rightly got harangued by a couple of Wolves fans for uh, talking about, you know, that, that sort of traditional uh, rivalry rather than, you know, giving Wolves the, the seriousness that they deserve that, that, yeah, could could propel them uh into the, uh, I mean, the way Chelsea are playing, it's it's looking tough, but you, it's not impossible at all that Wolves could finish um, top four. And and like Greg, I mean, I, you know, there is much to admire about the team, about the coaching, about the structure. You know, I have written quite a lot about the George Mendes link. I I, I think it's you know it's fascinating as a journalist for one thing just to see how the club is run. I do I did basically was putting a red flag over it just to say that we yeah, there's a long history of clubs that have lived to regret uh allowing an agent to be to have the sort of the level of control that that Mendes uh appears certainly to have given his tentacles everywhere um and yeah there's been a lot of tears shed a lot of clubs when they've allowed that type of relationship to get out of control but you know i i raise that red flag but um they seem to be very uh, happily ignoring it and sailing um, blissfully on, and and you know, if if it's going to go wrong, it doesn't look like going wrong anytime soon. <laughs>
2: no. the, one, the one thing you have to say is that you know that well, all of that's true is that the it doesn't you know they, they still have to do it right. I mean, Arsenal are sort of starting to have a bit of a closer relationship with Kier Barchin, and they just signed his client, signed David Luiz, Edu the, is the. You know, he's pulling a lot of the strings in the, the hierarchy. He's another one of his clients. So, you know, you can have a strong link, and it is a very strong, it's a stronger link than any agent in a football club there's ever really been in the Premier League. Uh, but they've still gone about and gone about it very, very astutely, and and obviously his stable of talent is has been a huge, huge factor in in, uh, in Wolves' rise.
0: Gregor, do you think they'll make the top four then? It's gonna be very tight.
2: I mean the thing is I was looking at their running and Arsenal next. Um Sheffield United who've really had a terrible restart. Everton, Burnley Palace, and then Chelsea's the last game. So Chelsea again we'll come it, down could be, to that. it could be another huge one. So I think that I, I think actually the the race for the for the top four, because Leicester are stumbling a little bit, it could be a bit a lot more interesting than we'd than we'd first uh, imagined. So I think they're going to be right up there.
0: Well, the Wolves team's littered with success stories this season. You've already mentioned Adama Traore, six goals and nine assists. There's Raul Jimenez, 18 goals and nine assists for him. And uh, Diogo Yota has been involved in 13 goals, 12 he scored and one that he's assisted. When you talk about those players and the rest of the team at Molineux, do do they need a Champions League place, Matt, to, to keep hold of these players for next season?
1: Well, and that that does sort of loop us back to, to, to where we were in that discussion about the agent because that's why, you know, it is necessary to police um, conflicts of interest because obviously, you know, players should be moved when a club uh, and that player decide is, is the right time, um, you know, players on a contract, the, the club has a certain control of it. Um, and if, you know, shall we say that gets blurred by uh, agent involvement in a club, then that's where we get those conflicts of interest that are quite rightly seen as unhealthy and um, meant to be policed. So, (laughs) you know, clearly, if you've got ambitious players, they want to be playing in the Champions League. But I think it's the same we say at Wolves, the situation is is more complicated.
3: to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here for Mint Mobile.
4: hello i'm stig Abel.
0: i'm asma mir and you can hear our breakfast program on times radio
4: join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day
0: ahead listen to our morning show for free on dab radio your smart speaker at times.radio and via our times radio app every monday to thursday 6 a.m to 10 a.m on times radio know your times Well, since our last podcast, something fairly major has happened in the Premier League, and that is that, of course, Liverpool are the champions of England for the first time in 30 years and Premier League winners for the very first time. Now that the dust has settled on Thursday's night celebrations, uh, how will Liverpool remember this league campaign? Indeed, how will we we remember this campaign for Liverpool, Gregor?
2: How will we remember it? Uh, Undoubtedly, one of the... One of the finest Premier League sides that there's ever been, and the most relentless too. Um, so you know, I, th- I think it's very likely they'll go on and smash many records, including the hundred points barrier that mm-hmm. Manchester City set. Um, I just it's 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 obviously kind of must be one part of Liverpool fans that is kind of heartbroken with the 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 fact that they can't celebrate it together. Um, and I know, you know, Jurgen Klopp has made a big thing about this just now, saying we uh, w- there will come a time when we can celebrate this together, and I'm sure they will celebrate it. And and the players looked like they've enjoyed it as well, actually, uh, watching the game together. Um, but I think I think this is the this is the beginning of something as well. I think we, when you hear the way that Jurgen Klopp has been has been speaking after this, and you saw how emotional he was in that interview, actually, on, on Sky Sports, and then in, in other interviews, and he's he said things like, you know, he loves the scout's soul. I think, I think if you were any, if you know, if you were a, a supporter of a club from Manchester or London or anywhere, you're probably feeling a little bit queasy right about now. But <laughs> I think if they were being completely honest and they imagined that Jurgen Klopp was their manager and he was saying that about their club and about their city and the people in it, after just winning the Premier League and the Champions League in the space of a year, it really does not get any better. I don't see another manager in world football like Jurgen Klopp at the moment. And and we you know, we we can we can talk about, you know, we <laughs> I I can alluded to this in my, my column about about Neil Warnock and I'm not in any way compare, comparing Neil Warnock and Jurgen Klopp here, but all of you know, there's been some fascinating uh, articles written, some great pieces in the Times in particular in recent days, about the detail and the kind of the journey that Liverpool have been on and employing employing the right people and you know a throwing coach the psychologist the former nasa scientists and look at data and transfers and things like this but none of this would be the possible without jürgen klopp and his personality so that's still despite it all despite all the the, the sort of the journey that the the transformation of football and over the last couple of decades and how much scientific more scientific it's become and and the speed and the power and the more passes everything it's it, the game is transformed it's still this is still a, a a team in Jurgen Klopp's image and i think that's that's a great thing for football
0: mm. it's interesting when you mention about other clubs might be looking on and One might be feeling a little bit sick with all the sort of love that there is for for Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp right now. But Man United fans might just be kicking themselves when they hear now how Jurgen Klopp has said, well, I was courted by Manchester United, but I decided to go to Liverpool in the end when it came down to a decision to be made after his wife had said, no, 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 let's just wait. Manchester United isn't the right one for you. (laughs) Um, Matt, where, where does this team rank in most entertaining sides to win the Premier League, do you think?
1: well it's, it's you know it's definitely right there in the in the conversation I, I thought it was great that they sort of smashed palace the way they did to you know to stand on, on the brink of it just to remind us how exceptional you know they they have been for so long i mean i, I think you yeah, know look they've got a, a very proactive as Gregor says it's in the style of their manager it's a very um yeah front foot style you know they've got some tremendous um players to watch individual talent um, I think the one thing I guess which is sort of when we talk about entertainment, that partly comes not just from your own you know, abilities, but from rivalry. And obviously, yeah, previous season it was down to a point, but that that's what this season lacked, if anything. And that's not their fault. Obviously, it's you know, a testament to them that they've crushed everyone. But I think if you know, I like to judge. You know, when I look back on, say, thinking about the great Man U side that won the treble and the, the great Arsenal side around that time, what what helped to elevate them was the quality of the rivalry that, you know, drove them on, that they were that Arsenal, Man U, those battles, you know, they, 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 they lifted each other, they drove each other and um, they might have hated each other at times, but they, they look back with colossal respect. And I think, you know, my hope would be that City respond to this, bounce back and, and you know, demand that Liverpool prove how brilliant they are again and again. And that's, that's what makes for great memories and really lifts the great champions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what, James Gearbrandt has written an in-depth piece on Jurgen Klopp for the Times. The seven ages of Jurgen Klopp, the making of the man who brought the title to Liverpool. And it charts the rise of Liverpool's boss from lowly beginnings in Germany, where a former teammate said he had the mentality of a Champions League player and the ability of a fourth division player. And how he sat weeping in the dressing room for 10 minutes after its Mainz side were beaten 3-1 by Union Berlin, blowing their promotion chances. That coupled with time out of the game, working on TV before landing the job at Dortmund, where he often manned the phones and washed the team bus whilst making his name in the world game, which would lead to the perfect storm move, of course, to Liverpool. It really is a superb read. You really do learn all about how Jurgen became Jurgen Klopp as we know him today. Does it make you warm to Klopp even more when you've read it, Gregor?
2: Yeah, well, it certainly, um, it was great to, to to read about his path and how his path has been charted and and the the different the different periods from you know from Mainz to Dortmund and and the style of football and how it was crafted and and transformed and and I think that's something as well really you have to say about Liverpool aren't they've almost kind of reined in the 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 heavy metal football this season a little bit and become more disciplined and and you know known when to when to go out all out and attack and when when to be a little bit more conservative and so those little tweaks is what has made them such a kind of uh, a dominant machine now um, but I just think you know reading that piece and then and also Matt wrote a great piece as well kind of um I think uh, speaking about the sort of the cultural resonance of football in Liverpool, and and how you know the whole idea of that they've got this kind of mantra that this means more, and um, you know other other football fans hear that and and again feel a little bit queasy, but that you know Liverpool certainly feel that, and and so it just feels like such a it's felt like such a perfect fit, a perfect marriage between him and Liverpool, and and uh, if I was a supporter of a another club. I'd be a little bit fearful to be honest. And I I think, you know, Matt's saying about the rivalries, we have got we could potentially have a a rivalry to look forward to for if, if Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp hang around for for a few more years, we've got an epic rivalry here. Because these are two guys who've come in the space of five five or six years, sort of revolutionized what we can see as possible from a team in the Premier League. And um, we've got them both here at once, so it's a good time to be alive.
0: Do you think, uh, Matt, in some ways we can compare Young Klopp's arrival in the Premier League to that of Jose Mourinho in 2004 with Chelsea in terms of significance and what they've brought to the league?
1: Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, they're they're galvanisers. I mean, yeah, we have to remind ourselves that Jose Mourinho did once come with a smile and (laughs) come come, come with some... uh, you know, charisma that we could enjoy as opposed to looking like he's chewing a wasp. Um, so, yeah, if we'd certainly sort of going back to Mourinho mark one uh, in the Premier League. Yeah, it was, you know, you had to sit up, you had to note other managers had to, you know, look at what he was doing, what he was doing, a team shape, what he was doing with team energy, you know, and in that way of making all your rivals think, wow, you know, this is different. This is I've got to raise my game, as you say. Even someone of Pep Guardiola standing has to look at this now and go, "I've got to respond." You know, if I want to prove that I'm one of the great managers, this is this is a heck of a challenge for me. So that's that's fantastic um, for for the league and for the rest of us. And I, I think, you know, Klopp's Klopp's just one of those guys. You know, I, I think we see it obviously in in the. The fine detail of of how he builds a team, but I think that the, the psychology, the messaging around it, he's he's been he's out you know beyond Mourinho, possibly beyond um, any manager I can think of. Certainly in the last ten years, in terms of other fans of other clubs, players of other clubs warming to him. I think there's something about him as a human, as much as a manager, that, that, and the way he. Uh, transmits and, and, and communicates that, you know, you just think, I want to go for a pint with him. Um, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I've seen, we've seen it this in the last 24 hours in the fact that he's condemned the celebrations and the, some of the way they've been done. You know, when when Liverpool fans uh, bombarded the Man City coach outside Anfield, you know, he called them idiots. You know, and that that's, you know, and a lot of managers were sort of tiptoe around that. And I think he's just got that, Natural human ability to to sort of say it as it is, and and to you know, he's got a great empathy, a great sense of humour, uh, as well as being a you know a very smart motivator uh, and galvanizer. And that's I, I think in terms of sort of popularity, he's probably you know um, gone gone beyond Mourinho, beyond even Guardiola in in that sort of natural respect he gets beyond his own club.
0: Mm. He certainly has a charisma that just catches everybody, it feels. Um, but Gregor, when, when you look at the last year, he's won the Champions League, he's won the UEFA Super Cup, has won the FIFA Club World Cup and now, of course, has won the Premier League that Liverpool have been so desperate for. Is Klopp then the number one manager in the world right now?
2: I think he has to be. Um, as I say, I think any, any, any club in the world would be... Absolutely delighted to have Jurgen Klopp at the helm because he's not just someone who uh has who a kind of a definite blueprint of, of the way that he wants his team to play and, and it's an entertaining football to watch, but he's also a figurehead and a and a personality and uh as Matt said, someone who everybody even neutrals warm to very much. So I think possibly we've done enough of loving for for Jurgen Klopp now, people will be turning <laughs> off. <so. laughs> but yes, he is. He's got to be. He's got to be.
0: Well, it doesn't stop there, I'm afraid, Gregor. <laughs> there is plenty more for us to talk about when it comes to Liverpool. Maybe I'll move on from from Jurgen Klopp, and we should talk about Trent Alexander-Arnold, shall we? Just 21, and his. Record of achievements so so far is is quite remarkable as well. Champions League winner, Super Cup winner, Club World Cup winner, Ballon d'Or nominee, record breaker for assists in the Premier League for a defender and now a Premier League winner. Added to that, he has a mural outside Anfield with the quote, I'm just a normal lad from Liverpool whose dream has come true. When you have won as much as Trent Alexander-Arnold has in in such a, a short career so far, Matt, how do you keep him motivated to achieve so much more?
1: Well, you know, I don't think he would have improved as he has and 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 kicked on like he has without having that, you know, drive that that makes the very best players. You know, they're they're ambitious, not just to win trophies or to you know earn a, earn a good wage, but just that's in them. That's that's in them to, to to keep to keep improving. And I think, you know, he's got to get a regular place in the England team for starters. Um, I'm not saying that's top of his, you know. Um, uh, ambitions right right now but it should it, it certainly should be up there because you know there's been competition in that place and he's you know he's clearly the future well, he certainly should be the 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 future for England and and, and help lift them to to, to new heights but yeah you know, there's all sorts of stuff out there and that's you know it's back to that issue of, you know, I mean Ferg Alex Ferguson was the master at it, wasn't he, of, you know, okay, we've won that, what's next? Um, you know, you don't hang around, you you know, you go out, you celebrate, um, and the next morning you're back in at seven o'clock in the morning because that's you know, the great champions are the ones who keep coming back and keep coming back for more and, and Trent Alexander Alexander Arnold has, you know, every chance of going, you know, in history as one of the great right backs, you know, this country's ever produced and yeah, that's there for him if he wants it and if he keeps the drive and that concentration.
0: Tony Cascarino's been writing about Trent Alexander-Arnold in the game today, about his best position perhaps, and he's urged Jurgen Klopp not to move him into midfield, believing his best position in Liverpool's 4-3-3 formation is at right-back as it allows him to venture so far forward. Of course, he did start out in midfield. Um, should he stick at right-back then for you, Matt?
1: I think so. I agree with Tony. I think, you know, I think the, you know, it's not as if the the sort of right back position now is, you know, um, well, certainly not when I was playing. Um, It's, 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 it's it's revolution. You know, you can be one of the most influential players on the pitch, uh, as Trent Alexander-Arnold shows, you know, not infrequently.
0: Gregor, let me ask you then, you were a defender When you look at Trent Alexander, (laughs) hey, hey, come on, let's give you some credit. You know what it's like to play in defense, and I certainly don't. But do you, from what you see of him when, when he's playing, is his talents in a way wasted in defense, or do you actually see that he has the potential to go on to be one of the best right backs?
2: No, I think that particularly in this Liverpool team that has a kind of fairly unique system of play, of course. Fullback and what fullbacks are expected to do now has transformed in probably the last fifteen years, but he's tri- he's he's done something above and beyond that. He's kind of revolutionising what I don't know the parameters of what a fullback can do how you know the number of assists he's he's he's, he's registering. Uh, he play, he he contributes as much as a midfielder does. In Liverpool obviously the midfield is the engine room, the front three are so dynamic and fast and, and it's always it's often upon you know falls upon the fullbacks to supply them and they've got great relationships. So I I, I think it would be foolish to, to move him and this is obviously this is a a kind of debate that keeps popping up because of his quality. I think he's the best English player in a generation. I really do. I think he's 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 a really special talent. Um so I but I think that the way the way he he contributes and what he can do to affect the game from fullback is, uh, is remarkable. So that, you know, while well, he's still doing that. I would keep doing it. I'd also say that he's um, off the pitch. He's, he's remarkable. I saw an interview with him um, a few days back and he was talking about the, the Black Black Lives Matter and, and uh, some of the things for a 21 year old that he's talking about. And, you know, saying things like, I want, He said, "He said he wants to influence a generation, and that's when he looks back. He doesn't just want to look at, you know, a trophy hall and a, and uh, the number of medals he's won. He wants to have used his platform for, for good and to talk about things that are important to him. So, you know, a twenty-one-year-old to show that kind of maturity and to do what he's done on the football pitch already, I think he's going to go down as like a, a Liverpool great, like up up there with Steven Gerrard."
0: Yeah, credit to him, as you say, with the things that he's doing off the pitch, much like Marcus Rashford then, I suppose you could say. Liverpool's first game as champions is poetically away at Manchester City on Thursday. Pep Guardiola has confirmed that City will give Liverpool a guard of honour on Thursday night. But is that something we like to see in the game, Matt? Do we need that?
1: Uh, I think we like to see a bit of sportsmanship every now and then, don't we? You know, I think, um, you know, put it this way, if if it was my uh club um i'd think absolutely should do it i think it would serve as a say a sporting thing to do and actually you know what it might make my players um you know think long and hard about the sort of sense of um not humiliation but you know the sense of defeat that comes with it and and concentrate their minds and I might do you know i think it's obviously um, particularly hard for a team that's just lost the championship or ex- expects to win championships. I, I remember helping Gary Neville with his book about it and I, I think it must have been clapping out Arsenal at uh, at Old Trafford and he, he said it was like applauding burglars into your own house, um, which, you know, says <laughs> stop stop women. I'm sure that will feel like that for, for, for City players. Um, but yeah, that's if I was Guardiola, I would get them to do it as a way of saying a mark, you know, a, a mark of respect, and B, just to say, guys, let's make sure we'll, it's the other way around next year.
0: Premier League history has brought us some humiliating guards of honour. Many accused Alex Ferguson of foul play in 2007 when he played a weakened team against Chelsea, forcing Mourinho's men to form a guard of honour for the likes of Zhu Dong, Chris Eagles and and Kieran Lee. And then, of course, in 2013, Arsenal had to applaud Robin Van Persie onto the Emirates pitch, having jumped ship to Manchester United the season before. Where do you stand on guards of honour then, reg or do, do you like them do you think we need them is it as, as Matt has pointed out it's an act of sportsmanship to players do players really want to be doing them <laughs>
2: no um no. but I think you know I think there's nothing wrong with an act of sportsmanship like that and I think Matt's right if you're if you're one of the players applauding the team onto the pitch it's kind of you're stealing yourself and thinking you know I want to be in in their shoes this time next year. And it uh, springs to mind what Paul Paul Joyce wrote a piece this week as well about, um, I think Sir Sir Alex Ferguson sent Kenny Dalglish a a text message of congratulations. And they used to, you know, I think he was saying that in his time, you know, before mobile phones, it used to be a letter. So they would send a letter every year of congratulations. And I'm sure it was fairly short and curt and just saying, well done. So it's an act of sportsmanship. But it's something that that one team does to another, and but they know deep down that they want to be in the other shoes this time next year.
0: Well, we'll see what happens then, won't we? Um, (laughs) It'll be one to look out for, that's for sure. That is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Matt as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. Just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you for the very latest pod on Thursday. Take care.